The following audio is from The Grove Church. For more information about the church or to listen to previous sermons, visit our website at grove.church. Well, good morning. Welcome to The Grove. If I haven't met you before, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I'm stoked that you are here as we continue our Family Ever After message series that we started last week. And the reason I'm stoked is because I absolutely believe that we as pastors and our staff absolutely believe that when a family unit is operating the way that it was designed by God, that it is life-giving and one of the most world-changing agents on the planet. Amen? The idea that when a family, moms and dads and kids and grandparents and aunts and uncles, when it's functioning the way that it was designed, it is life-giving and world-changing. The opposite is also true. And I'm sure some of us would relate to that. We've seen this happen, that when a family unit doesn't operate right, we find brokenness and we find pain. And I realize that today, as we continue this, our topic is specifically marriage. And I realize that not everybody in here today is married, but I do want to say this. Regardless of your relationship status, I want to share a few things with you today that hopefully, whether marriage is potentially in your future somewhere and you're single, whether you've been married uh, for a while and things are going good, or maybe you're married right now and there's some struggles happening, maybe you're married and, and man, it's not looking good and, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope. Or maybe in your past, The word divorce is a part of your story. No matter what your relationship status, hopefully we can give you some tools today. Certainly marriage in 30 minutes. We can't tackle everything that has to do with marriage in 30 minutes. But hopefully we can give you some spiritual and some practical things that can push you forward on a path to a God-honoring marriage. You know, marriage is powerful and it's beautiful. In fact, in scripture, it's the picture that the apostle Paul uses to help his audience understand or try to understand the love that Jesus has for the church, right? He uses the love that a bridegroom has for his bride on their wedding day. This is the picture that we're given to help us understand how Christ loves us, the church, And so we're going to talk about marriage today, but as we get started, I'm curious. I have some curiosity. I need your guys' help. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not going to ask you a trick question where you're going to raise your hand and feel stupid, okay? But I need your help a little bit because I'm curious about my audience. Okay, ladies, let's start with you. How many ladies, come on, be bold with me, all right? From an early age, maybe you fantasized and you dreamed about your wedding day, the perfect wedding day. Come on, keep those hands up. Right? You dreamed about your wedding would have the perfect guy and that you would live in the perfect house. Come on, raise them high and keep them up for me so that we can see, all right? And maybe, just maybe, you named your perfect children before they were ever born, all right? Any ladies, anything close to that, all right? You can put your hands down. Yeah, there's just something about it. Some of you I know had notebooks full of color splotches and what centerpiece flowers you were going to have and what types of dresses your bridesmaids would have. It's typically how it works. Now, men, let's talk to you for a second. You probably had a little different fantasy when you were a teenager (laughs) and you were thinking about marriage. Now, fellas, if you're not honest and raise your hand, God will strike you dead where you are in this seat, all right? Just warning you, all right? Guys, how many of you, when you dreamed about someday getting married, your dream was that you were going to have sex twice a day? Come on, put your hand. If you're not raising your hand, you're lying, okay? God does not like liars. Okay, you can put your hands down. I got one more I'm curious about. 
I need to know, be bold, raise them strong. Where are my single ladies and my single fellas at? Single, you're not married yet. It's in your future maybe someday. Raise them high. Come on, keep them up in the air no matter what age you are. You're single, you're not married. Now here's what you do. Keep your hand up. And while your hand is up, I just want you to scan the room for other people <laughs> with their hands up. And if your eyes lock and mean and music starts to play, I just want you to go with it, all right? He who finds God finds life. He who finds God finds a wife. Amen. All right. Now I want to talk to everybody that I just raised your hand. Ladies, gentlemen, how many of you are still dreaming to this day that those things will come true? They're not quite come to fruition. Yeah, yeah, it's typically the way that it goes. You know, it's amazing sometimes, and maybe the truth is most of the time, our expectations of what marriage will be when we're younger turns out to be something far different when we get married, isn't it? Far different than what we expected. And again, certainly we can't cover every topic uh, or nuance to marriage in 30 minutes, but I want to share a few thoughts with you today, a few verses um, and, and practical things that hopefully no matter what your relationship status is, no matter how long you've been married, whether your marriage is strong and going great or whether your marriage is struggling and you need help, that can give you a starting point as you leave today to start a conversation that maybe where the light a spark where the spark is dwindling or has gone out in your marriage or maybe dimming. And if you're not married yet, but maybe hopefully honestly someday or if it's a possibility someday that we can share a few things to help equip you and lead you towards a healthy God-honoring marriage. I want to stop for a moment and also say, and I mentioned it before, if, if divorce is a part of your story leading to today, I don't want you to check out because this is not a message of condemnation for you. In fact, it's a message of hope that through Christ there is hope and there can be healing and there can be restoration. So it doesn't exclude you from this, okay? But we're going to take a look at this. And to start, we need to take a look at Scripture and to see what the Bible says about marriage. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to pull them out. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Always encourage you to bring your Bible. Also, you can open up that smart app uh, on your smartphone, the Bible app, and you can turn uh, to Genesis chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to uh, set a, a stage for us real quick. You know, obviously most of us know that Billy Graham passed away uh, recently, the great Billy Graham, and, and I was watching a synopsis of his life and some interviews and some of his messages, and he said something that I know, and many of you have heard before, and I had heard it before, but man, it was such a great reminder for me, is he said the gospel, uh, the cross of Christ is offensive, but it's something that every single one of us will have to contend with at some point in our life. And the question is, well, why is the cross why is the Bible, why is the gospel offensive? Because the Bible, the scriptures, the way that life was intelligently designed is the bar that has been set for us to compare our lives to. Everything from relationships to our priorities to our relationship with money, all of these things are supposed to be filtered through what does the Bible say, not the other way around. And a lot of us sometimes do that. We filter scripture through our life. Well, I don't like that part. I like this part, but I don't like that part. And we get weighed on every single day from politics and media and the people that we see and school and our neighbors and all of these things. But the gospel is offensive because it's the thing that we compare our life to. It's the bar that's been set. And when we do that, it glaringly shows where we're missing it, doesn't it? The Bible is offensive. But I'd also like to say I use the term intelligent design. 
that God designed marriage, we'll talk about it today, but he also designed life in a family unit to function in a certain way. And when we cease to function and take those things and we do something exterior to that or opposite of that, that's where we get into trouble and we have hardships. And so with that being said, let's find out what the Bible says about marriage. Again, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 18. Where we jump in is the tail end of the creation process. God has created night and day, and it says he saw that it was good. And he created the heavens and the earth, and he saw that it was good. And he created the, the mountains and the trees and, and uh, uh, the oceans, and he saw that it was good. And he created the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, and he saw that it was good. And he created man, and he saw that it was good. And this is what we pick up in verse 18. It says, then God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up that place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. What we see in Genesis, and again, there are many passages of Scripture. We don't have time to read them all today, but what we start to see here is by intelligent design, God created out of the side, out of the rib of Adam, a helper that would be suitable for him. Not out of his feet so that he would rule over her, not out of his head so that he would be in submission to her, but out of his side, his rib, so that they would be partners in life. What we see is that marriage, the way that it was designed, was one man and one woman. It's also a side note, interesting to see that this is the first time in the creation process that we see God call something not good. Everything before that, when he created it, it was good. But he saw that man was alone and that it was not good. And what we're doing here is discovering the biblical definition of marriage. One man and one woman. And as soon as I say that, some of us become uncomfortable because we've had so much influence from all these different areas of life about what we can or can't say. Today in our culture, everybody gets offended over everything, right? It becomes a thing where as a Christian, I don't know if you can relate, but I feel like even as a pastor, there's certain things I can't say or I'm going to offend somebody because that's why culture is still even pushing in on me as a pastor, and what I'm not saying is to go out and spew hate and go out and hold signs and picket against something that you don't believe or call a group of people that they're going to hell. That's not our job. As uh, far as I can tell, Jesus said that you'll be known, you and I, by our love. But it also doesn't mean that we can't stand for what we believe and to call something what it is. And we believe wholeheartedly that marriage was designed between one man and one woman. I want to pause for a moment. What I'm also not saying, what we're not trying to say is that we should spotlight a group of people or somebody who may not live up to that over other things. Yes, we need to say it's one man and one woman, but we don't put that on a pedestal and in a spotlight and let other things skirt and get swept under the rug, do we? Let me give you a couple examples. A heterosexual couple, a man and a woman, Living together outside of marriage falls short of the design, the intelligent design that God had created for us. 
a heterosexual couple is right up there in that same grouping, that it doesn't measure up to what God had if they're enjoying the fruits and the benefits of marriage before the marriage covenant takes place. If that's us and we're in that place, we're not measuring up to that thing. And as pastors, can I simply tell you this? We didn't become pastors because we were going to get rich, okay? I don't do this job because I make a ton of money. I can make way more money doing something else in the public sector. I don't even do this job, and pastors, we don't do this job because we have a power trip, right, or because there's some great respect that comes along with it. Maybe in the 50s, pastors were very much revered, right, as figures in the community. Did you know that studies are shown now that pastors rank as far as a social outlook on them just below used car salesmen? I'm just being honest. We don't do this. I do this because I love you. Pastors, we do this because we love you. I'm not here to to try to bring condemnation to who you are, but I want you to live the life that God designed for you to live. And our job is to measure our life up against Scripture and where we see it fall short so we don't elevate one simple thing. Somebody who's living a lifestyle out of the context of one man and one woman and somehow put that on a spotlight so that ours gets swept under the rug. We measure our whole lives next to Scripture. You know, I mentioned the word covenant, right? Enjoying the benefits of marriage without the marriage covenant. We live in a contractual society, don't we? It's all about the contract. Many people look at it as the marriage certificate, as the marriage contract, and contracts are something that we can get out of. It was never intended that way. It was meant to be a covenant between one man and one woman for life, for eternity. And a covenant means it doesn't depend, if I'm talking to my spouse, what you do. I'm giving you my love, and I'm going to tell you that I'm making a covenant with you to love you for my life, and it's not based on what you do back for me. God does that to us with grace, doesn't he? It's not like he says, I'll give you grace once, but if you ever screw up again, it's removed and it's not on the table anymore. Some of us turn away for an hour, and then we turn back to God. Some of us turn away for a day or a week or a month or sometimes years, but God says, I made a covenant with you in grace that whenever you come back, that my grace is sufficient to overcome the sin that you have. It's not based on us being perfect. Does that make sense? That's the way that marriage was intended. And you might say, well, Ryan, if marriage is such a powerful and divinely created thing, then why do so many marriages end in divorce? We heard the statistic last week, somewhere around 50%. And this is a horrifying statistic. I would have to believe that God is not okay with this. It's not the design that he had intended for us. And the question, why do so many end in divorce or don't make it? Again, as most of us know, marriage isn't easy. There are so many dynamics to a marriage relationship, but some relationships that may not make it might have some unique situations compared to somebody else, but there's going to be a lot of common denominators. Some of the common things between Couples that end up reaching that place. And I truly believe that they fall into two categories. That couples oftentimes either aren't spiritually prepared. They don't understand the spiritual background to what a relationship between a man and a woman is supposed to be. And so then they don't operate according to intelligent design and things go bad. And the second category is just simple practical situations. Not practically prepared for marriage, and I want to give you a couple. We start with the spiritual, and towards the end, I'm going to give you some practical things. Spiritually speaking, we just saw what the definition, the biblical definition of marriage is, one man and one woman. Let me give you another, since we hit the topic of divorce. And again, this is not a message of condemnation for you if that's a part of your story. There is hope and healing available to you in your future. But Jesus says this in Matthew 19 on the issue of divorce. 
Starting in verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came to him, Jesus, to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they will no longer be two but one. That verse alone right there could be a 30-minute message with all of the implications that come from it. And therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. What Jesus is saying here is that marriage was meant to be a forever bond from the beginning. That's the way that it was originally designed. And it was only by the hard hearts of the Israelites did Moses give them the ability to submit a certificate of divorce. As pastors, we would want to encourage you as a church that your marriage is worth fighting for, that your marriage is worth preparing for if it's something in your future, that it may be, look bleak right now like there is no hope. And our hope would be to say there is hope in Jesus Christ, that there can be reconciliation and healing. If you ask for help, if you're willing to be humble and have humility in your life, both of you, fight for your marriage. We would say that, man, we would hope that nobody would ever even have the word divorce in their vocabulary as an option. Because that's the way that it was originally intended, a covenant, not a contract. And I want to stop for just a moment to be clear about something. Because somebody could hear that, no divorce, no divorce, no divorce, and write in somehow and think that what we're saying is that in every circumstance, you're stuck. You made your bed and you lie in it. I want to give you an example of one of these. And there's several of them, but I'll give you one. If you are in a physically abusive marriage or a physically abusive relationship, we are not saying you made your, made your bed, you lie in it. Absolutely not. If you're in an abusive marriage and these do exist, please find a way to reach out for help. Again, I want to be clear. God doesn't intend for you to remain and suffer like that at the hands of your spouse. And this type of situation, I understand to some degree that it's critical. Some of them are very dangerous and even can be delicate in the sense of fear to even reach out for help about what might happen if you do that. But there are individuals and organizations that can help you. My simple point is this. God doesn't say just because you did it and you're in it that you need to stay in that situation. The first step, don't even start talking about divorce yet. The first step is to get out and find help. With that said, most marriages don't end in divorce because of an extreme circumstance like abuse. Right? Most of them end because, well, we just don't love each other anymore. Right? The spiritual preparedness and the practical preparedness just isn't there. And so there's a communication breakdown. There's a love breakdown. And it ends up ending. But I want to say again, your marriage is worth fighting for. Your spouse is not your mortal enemy, even though it may seem like it at some time. And in some situations, this is the person that you stood on an altar with. This is the person that you stood on a beach with and in front of friends and family. This is the person you wanted to spend the rest of your life with. And if you're at a place where your marriage is rocky, I want to tell you, don't give up. Your marriage is worth fighting for. Amen. There's a second part to the spiritual aspect, again, spiritual and practical. And Nick mentioned it last week. I'm just gonna briefly do that. If you didn't watch that, uh, if you weren't here last week, go watch the podcast or the vodcast. It's really, really good, right? But it's this issue of our spouse was never meant to be our number one, right? Hollywood has lied to us. 
Romance novels have lied to us. My kids' Disney princess movies have lied to us. It's this idea that if you just find the one that was meant for you in the whole universe, you'll live happily ever after. Not the way that it was intelligently designed from the beginning. It's always Christ first, our spouse second. When we get those priorities out of whack, that's why a lot of people are expecting something of their spouse that they can never deliver. If we're looking for our spouse to complete us, then eventually they will fail because it's an impossible task. It may not happen after a day or a week or a month or years, but eventually we will resent them and feel like they are not living up to their end of the bargain and their responsibility. And here's the second part to that, and I want you to write this down. We're going to call this the vow of priority. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. If you're married, I want you to make this a vow for your marriage. If you're going to possibly be married someday or married again someday, I want you to write this down because it will help save you from a lot of pain. It's the vow of priority. The first one, I just said it, God first, spouse second. And the second part is this, your spouse is second. It doesn't come third to your job. It doesn't come third or fourth to your kids. It doesn't come third or fourth or fifth to your buddies and your pals or your girlfriends. It doesn't come behind your hobbies and your season tickets. Your spouse is your number two. When those priorities work and stay the way they should, it makes it a whole lot easier in a marriage relationship. The vow of priority. There's one more spiritual element, and I'm going to share a few uh, in closing, a few practical things for you. And this is a verse... That's read often. Many of you will know this verse. It's also a verse uh, that is misunderstood and sometimes even twisted. And I want to read it to you how it's normally read. Okay? This is normally how it goes. This is Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the church, his body, of which he is Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. There's more, isn't there? Yeah, there's more. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as he loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And for this reason, sound familiar? A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And so often this gets twisted or misunderstood. It's about leadership and submission. What this verse is not, it is not a verse about dominance and who wears the pants in the family. This is a passage of scripture that is about mutual submission, and this is the way I wish it was read every single time, which is to read the verse preceding where we started. Because when you read verse 21 first, it changes almost the whole tone of what we just read, and it says this, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's about mutual submission. Yes, God has ordained men as the leaders of their home, of their wives, and of their kids, but not as dictators, as servant leaders. Fellas, if you've missed that, if somebody's taught you something different, it will change the dynamic of your marriage. Because when you're a servant leader, you love your spouse and your family before you even love yourself. Just as Christ loved the church and gave his life up for her, for us. Does that make sense? 
Fellas, if you live this out according to the way that God designed it, your wife will have no issue submitting to you because you've included her in on the process. It's about mutual submission. In fact, the best way that I think I could explain it is it's a lifelong competition between a husband and a wife of who can outserve and outsubmit to the other person. That's what this passage of Scripture is about. Spiritual preparation and practical preparation. I want to give you a few practical things as we close today. Right? I want you to write this down. I already gave you the vow of priority. That second one I want you to write down is the vow of of partnership. It's the idea of mutual submission. It's the vow of partnership. And here's the last one is the vow of pursuit. If you're married, make these vows part of your daily thinking and it will help you. If you're going to be married someday, write these down because it will save you from a lot of pain. Trust me. The vow of pursuit is this. Let's be honest. The dating season was really fun and exciting, wasn't it? Some of you are in it right now. Some of you, if you can remember back to what it was like, it's pretty exciting. Right? There's the butterflies. Men, it's kind of like the hunt is on. Right? It's a competition, and you're going to win this thing. Right? And if there's other guys and suitors going after the same girl you are, man, that just ups the ante a little bit. Right? And this competition thing is like, by golly, we're going to win. I'm going to be the last one standing. Right? Plus, she was really, really cute, wasn't she? Right? She's always dolled up. Or she's got the perfect outfit on. She smells great with her perfume every time you go on a date. Her hair is always perfect. It's exciting, right? You didn't know this, but she spent hours getting ready for your date. She tried on 15 different outfits before she found the perfect one. She called and texted all her friends about your upcoming date. The dating phase is exciting, isn't it? Ladies, be honest with me. The dating phase is exciting. It's exciting to be pursued, by one, or maybe you were lucky and you had several suitors coming after you. And when you finally chose one, he's opening up all sorts of doors for you, right? He's listening to you and remembering what you say. And, and I don't want, I see, some, I see some of this happening out there, all right? Right, and he's buying you your favorite things because he remembered you said it was your favorite thing. He's being romantic. He's holding your hand while you're walking in public, right? He's pre-planning these fun, adventurous, romantic dates, but then we get married, <laughs> right? Things start to change, don't they, for both sides? Maybe not overnight, but little by little, things start to feel a little different. Man, maybe it's that the thrill of the hunt is over, right? Maybe she isn't as dolled up as often as she used to be. Maybe now it's more often sweatpants and a hoodie than it is the perfect outfit with the perfect hair, Ladies, maybe he doesn't open as many doors for you anymore, right? No flowers just waiting for you at your desk when you get to work, right? There's not the moments when he, he used to do where he's, he knows the road that you drive home every single day from work, and one day he just happens to be there on the side of the road, leaning against his car with a big bouquet of flowers. Why? Just because. And if you're still not picking up what I'm putting down, maybe this video will help you. Check it out. All right, well, maybe not that extreme, but you get what I'm saying, right? Listen, I want to give you a challenge. To everybody who's in here, I want you to listen to me. If you're married, I want you to do this. If you're going to be married someday, I want you to write this down for when you are. Husbands, pursue your wives like you used to pursue them when you were dating. 
Wives, pursue your husbands like you used to do when you were dating. Don't stop dating each other. I get it. Life is busy, and it's work, and it's kids, and it's transport, and it's bills, and there's everything, and it's so busy. Put it on a calendar if you have to weeks out. And you might say, well, that's not very spontaneous. Listen, give up spontaneity to get the date, okay? Do something. Take a step in the right direction. Do crazy little things like you used to do. And, fellas, you might think they seem silly, but if it worked then and she loved it then, she'll love it now, okay? Pursue each other. Your marriage is worth fighting for. You heard a story of a guy one time. He had been dating his girlfriend for just a few months, about three months, and they came to their first major holiday. And so he's trying to think of what to get her. Now, it's too early in the relationship to do jewelry or something like that. It's too heavy, right? But he had listened to her, still in that phase, and remembered what she had said. He remembered all of these things just in conversations, what her favorite things were. So he decides to put a gift basket together for her of all her favorite things. And he remembered that she said she loved dogs, so he put in a little stuffed, you know, puppy in there. And she loved things that were pink. It's her favorite color, so he put pink things in there. She loved sour candy, so he put sour candy in there. Right? He knew all of her favorite songs, so he made a mix CD, which is only slightly less cool than a mixtape from all my 80s and 90s people, but still cool, okay, of all their favorite songs. And then he remembered that she said, man, orange Skittles are my favorite. I don't like any of the other colors, but I love orange Skittles. And so this dude went out and bought six of the big bags of Skittles. He opened up five of them, separated out all the orange ones. Okay, and then the sixth one he took and he tilted it up and with surgical precision he opened up a tiny hole in the top enough to squeeze one Skittle through at a time, right? He emptied it all out, separated the orange ones and this fool spent the next two hours one at a time putting all the orange ones back in. He heat sealed the top of it so it looked like it had never been opened, put it in the basket. Christmas comes, gives it to her. She sees all this stuff, loves it. She doesn't open up the Skittles right away and he doesn't say anything, and a couple days later, she gives him a call like, oh, my gosh, how did you get a whole orange bag of Skittles? Right? His stock went, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, same couple, fast forward about five years. They're married. They have a two-year-old. And like many couples, they get into arguments, and, and, and there's the natural stresses of marriage. Marriage is tough. And this time, she says, you know, I just don't feel like you love me anymore. You don't do any of the things that you used to do when we were dating. You, you don't, and she brings up the Skittles and this gift basket, and she goes, you don't ever do anything like that for me anymore. And I want to pause for a moment to say this. My youth pastor told me from very early on, Ryan, if you're going to be a leader, you're simply going to make mistakes in front of a bunch of people. Well, other people make mistakes and nobody's watching them. A leader doesn't mean you have it all figured out. A leader simply means you get to make mistakes in front of everybody else. And just like you, there are times in my life, even still, that I had to learn the hard way, okay? I had to learn the hard way. If you don't know, this is my wife, Adrian, and my daughter, Emery. It was me. I screwed up. I, I'm, I, the thing I'm preaching to you, I'm not preaching because I perfected it. I'm preaching to you because I've been there. It's difficult. It's hard. Don't stop dating each other. Last thing I want to give you, and we're going to put up on the screen, I want you to write some of these down, is a list of resources that you can take. Again, we only have 30 minutes today, but it's a list of resources that you can take and go invest in your marriage or invest in your future. And these, there's so many out there. And I'm sure some of you are saying, oh man, I wish this one's up there. There's a lot of great ones out there. But this is some of the ones that we as a staff and a pastor is particularly like. And I want to highlight one of them for you. Of all of the practical things that my wife and I have used or read, The Five Love Languages is probably one of the greatest resources, practically speaking, that has helped us in our marriage. How many of you guys have read or heard about The Five Love Languages before? I want to give you a basic premise, and then we're going to be done today. The Five Love Languages is basically this, is that every single one of us give and receive love in five basic ways. 
When we show somebody that we love them, there's the things that we do, and to them, man, it just fills their love tank. And for you, there's things that your spouse does for you that just fills your love tank. And I want to tell you what these five are. The five love languages are this. Number one is acts of service. When somebody does something for you and goes out of their way for you, when your spouse goes out of their way to do something, maybe it's clean the house from top to bottom before you get home, ladies, on a Saturday or from work, right? And it just fills your love tank, right? Number two is gift giving. When somebody gives you gifts, man, you just feel love inside, right? And for some of us, you know, we like getting gifts. It's good. It's not a bad thing, but it doesn't necessarily fill our love tank. Are you following me? Right, the third one is words of affirmation. Babe, you got this. I believe in you. Honey, this is gonna work. You've got the goods. Go for it. I'm behind you all the way. Words of affirmation make you feel loved. The fourth one is this, quality time spent. Right, when your spouse or your significant other spends time with you, you don't even have to be doing anything. You could be sitting at home doing nothing, but just being together is what fills that love tank. And number five is this, physical touch. Certainly sex is a part of it, but it's not exclusive to that. Holding hands, snuggling on a couch. And here's the key of why this is so important. It's because so many times we think we know what our spouse's love language is, but we're speaking something completely different, and we don't realize it. Let me give you an example. This is a hypothetical situation. Let's say that a marriage is reaching the end of, it, of its thing, and it's, well, we just don't love each other anymore. Right? That's what, some form of that is usually what you hear towards a separation and divorce phase uh, of marriages. Well, we, just, we fell out of love with each other. We just don't love each other anymore. And communication is huge right, between a marriage. And there's many facets of communication. But one of the most important is being able to communicate to your spouse love. Right? And so let's say that there's a couple, and she says, well, I just don't feel like you love me anymore. And he's confused, like, I don't understand. How do you not know that I love you? I'd say the words, I love you, all the time. I remember the officiant at our wedding saying, say these three words and say them often. And I say it all the time. And I don't understand. I work so hard for you, and I work all these hours and, and provide the house that we have, and our kids are in, in private school. And I, how, how do you not know that I love you? Well, if her love language is quality time spent, you can say, I love you, and it's good. You can work hard and provide, and it's good, but it's as if she speaks English, and you're speaking Spanish to her, and she doesn't understand, and it goes vice versa for guys, and I do premarital counseling all the time, and oftentimes, couples that haven't heard about the five love languages, I take them through it a little bit, and on that day in our session, I split them apart, and I say, hey, here's the deal. I've explained the five love languages to you. You know what they are. I just explained them in the last few minutes. Johnny, Sally, all right, Johnny, I want you, you're over here, Sally, you're over here. Johnny, write down what you think Sally's number one love language is. All right, Sally, you write down on the back of your test what you think Johnny's number one love language is. And then I want you to take the assessment and we're gonna come together. And more often than not, they didn't know. They thought they knew what their spouse or their significant other's love language was going to be, but they were mistaken. And you can spend a lifetime toiling and working hard to show love, but if it's in the wrong way, it's like the wrong language. Does that make sense? I want you to write these down and find some resource that you can use, but I also wanted to have a practical thing that you could pick up today if you needed to. So in the lobby on the left-hand side is a table with these books. It's simply selling them for what the cost is that we bought them, 12 bucks. We're not trying to make any money off of it. I want you to go out, and if that's you and you think you could uh, uh, use this book, if it would be healthy uh, for you, I want you to go out and buy it and pick it up. Of course, you can find it on Amazon. It's cheap. You can find a lot of these resources out there, but do something to invest in your marriage. I want to give this one away in this service, and, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm looking for a married couple that wants this, but by raising your hand is not meaning that your marriage is on the rocks, okay? You're not outing yourself in front of everybody. This is safe, okay? But the first couple that's married that says they would like this book, I'm going to give it to them right here. Can you run it to me? About four rows back. 
Last thing I want to tell you, your marriage is worth fighting for. It's not too late. It is not too late. If you're not married yet and it's in your future, your marriage is worth preparing for. Marriage is powerful and it's amazing and it's life-giving. Amen? Let me pray for you this morning. God, we thank you. God, that you created marriage. God, we thank you that it is a, a thing that you saw that man was alone and that it wasn't good. And you specifically fashioned Eve, the specific perfect partner that would be suitable. God, we thank you for that. And so, Father, we just pray right now for all marriages that are here, that whether it's going well or it's rocky or maybe it is in, in dire straits, that, God, there would be hope that there is hope in Jesus Christ for restoration and healing, that marriages are worth fighting for. And God, I pray that they would know that their spouse is not their mortal enemy. That this is the person that at one time they said, I give you all of my love forever and meant it. God, would you make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. And last, God, for those that are not married yet, but it's potentially in their future, God, would you help them to begin to invest now spiritual preparation and practical preparation, God, that we can live God-honoring marriages. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Podcast. If you want to keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook or sign up for our e-newsletter at grove.church.